episode 123. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Conor Hanmerty. Even though we've at least a year to go in terms of the number of lines to cover and episodes still to come, we now come to the first, last. Hamlet's soliloquy in Act 4, Scene 4 is his last in the play. Of course, Shakespeare is playing very much with the idea of how a soliloquy can work in Hamlet. For some of them, he is the only character on stage. Indeed, one of them starts with him saying, Now I am alone. But others, such as the most famous one in the play, happen with various witnesses. To be or not to be happens with Ophelia on stage, and we know that Claudius and Polonius are also listening. So the soliloquy isn't absolutely defined by the character being alone. Here, somewhere on a Danish plain or outlook, Hamlet has just told Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to go a little before. But again, we don't know if they're really likely to let him out of their sight. So perhaps they stay on stage, keeping an eye on him. But they're certainly out of the way. This soliloquy is the contested one. It doesn't appear in the folio, and many editors consider this to be proof that Shakespeare revised the play and cut it. It does appear in the second quarto, and just as many editors feel it should be included because of the insight it provides. It's quite some time since we discussed just how long this play is. In its entirety, it provides about four hours of material, and so this particular speech is often among the first things to be cut. No less a director than Peter Brook removed it completely, and boldly replaced it with To Be or Not To Be. Kenneth Branagh filmed it as a major turning point in his movie of the entire text, and his interpretation comes across as a battle cry driving Hamlet towards everything else that will happen in the story. It's totally worth watching the way the camera pans away from him as he declaims the speech, with a huge army marching across the snow behind him. I think the speech is fascinating, because in many ways it answers the soliloquies that have gone before. Let's have a listen to what Hamlet has to say in the first part of it. How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man, if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? A beast, no more. Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion, or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which, quartered, hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, sith I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambition puffed makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death and danger dare, even for an eggshell. There's a determination and a self-awareness beginning to emerge here. He says, How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. Hamlet is genuinely feeling as though everything around him is telling him to get cracking and revenge his father's murder. Obviously, we have the ghost himself reappear to wet Hamlet's almost blunted purpose, as he put it. 
Hamlet picks up that image of a knife that needs to be sharpened and here describes his dull revenge. Ever the philosopher, he wonders, what is a man if his chief good and market of his time be but to sleep and feed? What is the point of being a living human, a man, if the benefit he gets out of his time is nothing but sleeping and eating? This is a question, perhaps, that many of us might be pondering during these days of isolation and quarantine, but Hamlet's focus is on himself. He knows he has a job to do and feels almost stupid for not doing it, for existing instead of acting. All he's really been doing is sleeping and feeding instead of doing what his father told him to do. And what is a man who exists without acting? He says, a beast, no more. Almost in answer to to be or not to be, he who does not take arms against his sea of troubles is little more than an animal. Hamlet continues, Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fusten us unused. Here he's expanding, explaining that God, he that made us, created humans with such large discourse, such a huge capacity for thinking, and indeed the ability to think about the past and the future, looking before and after. And surely he gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. He did not create us, in his image, remember, with all of this capability for thought and with our divine reason in order for it to rot or fust in us without being used. There's advice for life from Hamlet right there. If you have something in your mind that you want to do, consider it a gift from God and go do it. But Hamlet is still busy berating himself for his own indecision. He continues, Now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know why yet I live to say this things to do, sith I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Rather typically, Shakespeare here gives Hamlet a very long sentence, nearly seven lines worth, as he argues with himself and tries to explain just why he is so blocked. He might indeed be like a beast, in a fog of feeding and sleeping and not thinking, what he calls bestial oblivion. Or maybe he's hung up on a craven scruple, or a cowardly hesitation, since, again answering that earlier soliloquy, conscience doth make cowards of us all. His hesitation is specific. He knows that he thinks too much, and wonders if his craven scruple is thinking too precisely on the event, paying too much attention to every detail of the outcome. Hamlet continues, literally breaking up the thought, which, if you broke it into four pieces, would consist of three parts cowardice to one part wisdom. Hamlet says that he doesn't even know why he is still alive if this job isn't done yet. I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do. Particularly since he feels he has the cause, will, strength and means to do it. It's maybe a little confusing that Hamlet thinks he has the strength and means to get his revenge right now, since he's being carted off to England and he has already left the palace. But he certainly has the cause and the will, and I think he's trying to build himself up to do it. The second half of this extraordinary thought is really remarkable for the way it's written. I can think of no other place where Shakespeare does something quite like this, but he gives us 26 syllables, which are a word each. 
I do not know, why yet I live to say this things to do, sith I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. There's a rhythm to these words, a kind of driving power. The first half of this extravagantly long sentence sees Hamlet identifying and criticising his own tendency to overthink things. And then he seems to claw his way out of his own overly long thought. The rhythm is driving him outwards from thought towards action. And surely it's not an accident that three of these short words are do, and that the entire sentence ends with the instruction, do it. It's like a theme running through all of his thoughts here. Do it, do it, do it. We get an even longer sentence in response. All occasions are encouraging him to his dull revenge, and he'd be blind not to see it. As he says, examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit, with divine ambition puffed, makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death and danger dare, even for an eggshell. The signs that are encouraging him are as gross or as obvious as the ground beneath his feet. Examples gross as earth exhort him. Witness, he says, this huge army, look at them, of such mass and charge. They're led by a delicate and tender prince. Hamlet himself is making the comparison now with Fortinbras. The army's spirit is puffed up with divine ambition, and they scoff and make mouths at the event, the outcome of their expedition. Even though it is invisible, they cannot see how it may turn out. Nonetheless, they're not afraid of it. They are exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death and danger dare, even for an eggshell. In other words, they're putting their lives on the line and they're prepared to expose the human, mortal, scared, unsure parts of themselves to whatever dangers fate or luck or death might present them with, all for the sake of something as slender and as useless as an eggshell. Hamlet is a great one for the comparisons. Back in Act 2, he was shocked at how the actor could shed tears for Hecuba, a long-dead foreign queen, while he contemplated the very real, recent death of his father. Here, he's emboldened by the comparison with the Norwegian soldiers. They're marching across what should be his lands for the sake of something as slight as an eggshell, while he himself should be spurred into action for significantly greater reasons. There's plenty more to come in this soliloquy, which I hope you might feel inspired to keep if you ever find yourself editing the play, and we'll cover its second half in the next episode. In the meantime, feel free to visit thehamletpodcast.com for further information and links to all the previous instalments of the podcast, and I'll speak to you next time.